You meet the average guy on the street, how are you going to get to heaven? What are God's entrance requirements? And he'll begin to rattle to you what he has done, what he has accomplished, or maybe the things he's kept away from. And they completely miss the word give that indicates this is a gift from God. And people very often in their pride and their self-sufficiency always want to do something to merit heaven, but it is impossible. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon is entitled, The Bread of Life Discourse, Part 1. We are in Chapter 6 of our study in the Book of John. So far, we have seen Jesus feed the 5,000 with just five barley loaves and a couple of fish. Those who were in attendance came back the next day to once again be fed. But Jesus is determined to give them the bread of life, not just a one-time meal. And it is the bread of life that we will be examining over the next few days. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he begins his message on the Bread of Life Discourse. Take your Bibles, please, this morning and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 6. The Gospel of John chapter 6, we're working our way through this Gospel chapter by chapter and verse by verse. If you remember, it was on one occasion that Jesus Christ said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And on another occasion, Moses, who said to the children of Israel just before his death and just before they had the opportunity to go into the promised land, that the word of God should not be just a formal, segmented part of their life, but a major part of all that they do. He said, And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your sons and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And so the Bible teaches that God's Word is to be a vital part of the New Testament worship service. And so we open the Word today because it's the instrument that He uses to convert people, and it is the tool that He uses to grow the church to the maturity and stature that belong to Christ. Just as you need physical food, to sustain your physical body, even so, we need spiritual food. And so we're coming to a portion of Scripture called the Bread of Life Discourse. We're in the longest chapter of the Gospel of John. And I suppose if I were just preaching the highlights of John's Gospel, I would leave the miracles that we saw in the first half of the chapter and go on to the next chapter, or more likely chapter 8. And I'm committed to preaching every phrase in this book because we need it. God put it here for a purpose. So I'll warn you in advance, this discourse is not an easy one. It's one of the more challenging discourses, one of the more challenging sermons in all of the New Testament. But I don't believe that God's people are to ignore portions of Scripture because it's too difficult or it might... Uh, not be friendly to the unbeliever. I don't believe that at all. I, I think you're thinking people, and God would have you to think your way through this passage and to see how it applies. Now, before we read the text, remember what happened in the first part of this chapter. Jesus Christ did a miracle. He had been preaching all day about the kingdom of God, and at the end of the day, the people are tired, they're weary, they're hungry, and he did a miracle by feeding probably 20,000 we're told that 5,000 men or households were represented, excluding women and children. So probably, conservatively, 20,000 people were served that day. 
He did a supernatural work. He showed his power over creation. And of course, the people want to make him king. They believe he must be the prophet that Moses spoke of, but their motives for making him king were not proper motives. And so Jesus commands his disciples to go to the other side, and he heads for the hills to pray. And of course, in the middle of the night, the disciples are there in the middle of the lake, rowing against the winds and fighting the waves. And the Lord Jesus does a triple miracle. He comes and he walks to them on the water. He instantly calms the sea. And then in a moment's time, they're immediately on the other side of that great lake. And so the people wake up the next morning. They're looking for the Lord. And much to their surprise, they cannot find him. Follow along as we read. We'll pick up in verse 22 where we left off last time. The next day, the multitude that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the multitude therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. They said therefore to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. They said therefore to him, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said therefore to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. I don't know if you've thought about it much, but about 20 to 25 times a week, we're all doing the same thing, typically at about the same time. You've already done it once this morning, in an hour or so you'll do it again, probably again this evening, and maybe even before you go to bed. For a lot of ladies, it's one of the most time-consuming portions of the day. It occurs no less than twice, typically as many as four or five times, and you know what it is. It's eating. And in America, of course, we enjoy some of the best food in the world. We don't lack in this country. One-third of the world, they tell us, will go to bed hungry tonight. 
but not this nation. We are blessed beyond all comparison. Not only has God blessed us with the ability to eat in our homes, but now, according to USA Today last week, it said that about half of all Americans, uh, or about the average American family that is eats half of all of his meals outside of the home each week in a restaurant of some type. So no, most of us have never really wanted for food. And sometimes that cultural mindset can flavor the way we think as we approach this portion of Scripture. When we come to this great multitude who are seeking Christ, some of us might come up with the old adage, well, you know, if you'll feed them, they'll come. And that's true, but it's not entirely true in this context. If they're hungry, they will come. We've seen the multitudes this week on our TV screens clamoring, begging, for food and water. In a few places, it became violent. People who are hungry. And the first century historians tell us, not to mention the record of the Acts, that this portion of the world, Israel, very often suffered for food. And that's why I emphasize as we work through the miracle of that feeding that Jesus Christ gave them all that they wanted. They were totally satisfied. And 12 baskets were left over. Christ had compassion on the crowd because he knew they might get faint if he did not feed them. It was a real problem. Now, in fat America, we think, get faint, miss a meal, I could survive, I wouldn't pass out. But if you'll remember in the parallel miracle where he feeds 4,000, again, he says, we need to feed them or they'll faint, literally pass out, the Greek text says, if they're not fed. It was a real need in this time. And so what we take for granted, these people did not. But after you experience a good evening meal, typically you wake up the next morning hungry. So they seek the Savior the next morning, the food giver, the fish maker, the bread baker. And they thought, well, if he could feed us with two fish and five loaves, then he can feed us again the next day. And so they go looking for the Lord Jesus. Now remember in the prologue, the introduction of this gospel John recorded, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were given through Jesus Christ. They were realized through him, in grace, our Lord had compassion and he fed the multitude. But in truth, he will now give them the word of God. And as we'll see in this discourse, they wanted the food, but they didn't necessarily want the truth. And so when they come to the end, most of these people will no longer follow him. Now, it's a lengthy discourse, and I can't preach it through in one week. I think it will probably take us three or four weeks. But I want us to give our attention to verses 22 to 40. In these verses are some of the greatest doctrines that are highlighted in all of the Bible. So they're very important and we need to think our way through it. So consider first the setting as we ponder the astonishment of the multitudes. The astonishment of the multitudes. Again, it's the feeding of the 5,000 as we call it that is the basis for this sermon that follows. Having just proven his power over creation, the Lord now interprets the significance of this miracle by giving a sermon. And it's not an uninterrupted sermon. Many of his listeners are hostile. But he doesn't, doesn't start that way. When he opens this whole thing, they start with a sense of amazement. Notice verse 22. The next day the multitude that stood on the other side of the sea... Opposite, of course, from where the disciples were. 
Those on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one. That Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the multitude therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. They wake up the next morning. Most of the people, it appears, had stayed in the same general area. Some had gone to their homes. The next morning, some of those friends from Tiberias, they get their boats. They come back expecting to find the Lord Jesus. The multitude wakes up. They expect to see him, and they are astonished that he's not there. There was no other boat except the one, and it was not used for him to go across to the other side. And so they really don't know where he is. So they reason, well, he'll probably show up where his disciples have gone, and we know where they are. So they get in all these boats, and they head across to Capernaum. Remember, that was the new home base for Christ, because in his own hometown of Nazareth, he was not received. And when they get there, to their amazement, they find him in the synagogue. Now, you don't know that until you get down to verse 59, where John says, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And so when they finally find him, they ask him this question, Rabbi, when did you get here? He had not walked around the lake. There was no evidence he had taken another boat. So they want to know, how did you get there? Now, we know how he got there. In the middle of the night, as he saw those disciples struggling, he came walking on the water and then transferred the boat in a second to the other side. But rather than satisfy their curiosity by answering their question, he just breaks into this sermon. So that's how it begins. That's the setting. That's the astonishment of the multitude. Secondly, I want us to think about the assessment of the master. Look, if you will, now at verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So Jesus pulls back the veneer. He goes for the jugular. He goes right for the heart, and he deals with the issue of motive. He says, the only reason you are here is because I fed you. The only reason you're here is because you want more. Your thoughts go no higher than the material realm. And so they failed to get the message of the miracle. They don't even know there's a message to the miracle. In fact, when they finally do get the message to the miracle, they don't like it at all. They all forsake him and abandon him. They wanted food, but they didn't want truth. And so in the end, they'll all leave. I can't help but think that the disciples must have been impressed that this whole multitude would cross the sea in this great crossing to meet the Savior. Remember, he had been preaching the day before about the kingdom of God, this coming kingdom. And as the Gospels record in numerous occasions, they are in discussion over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And so I'm sure they were impressed, but the Savior was not impressed because he knew what was in man, John wrote. He knows the human heart. And so when the chapter opens, they're seeking him because of the miracles. And that's not a bad thing. That was an okay thing because... A seeker, among other things, would want to see whether or not someone who claimed to be the Messiah had the credentials for the Messiah. And there was a unique group of miracles that only the Messiah would do. And so that's not a bad way to start. That's where Nicodemus started. He said, we know you've come from God because no one else can do the miracles that you do unless God is with them. 
But the problem at this point is that it had degenerated simply to the level of food, and their motive now is just another meal. So putting his finger on the problem, notice verse 27, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for in him the Father, even God, has set his seal. Now, Jesus highlights two kinds of food. There's food for the body to sustain physical life, and there's food for the soul to sustain spiritual life. There's that food that you earn by the sweat of your brow, and then there's that food that Jesus Christ gives to you. Now, it can't be achieved by good works. It's described here as a gift, something the Son of Man gives to you. It's Christ alone who can give you this food. And the reason is, for in him the Father, even God, has set a seal. Now, in that day, a seal took the place of a signature. And so it was the seal that authenticated a document or guaranteed the terms of a contract or the contents of a package. And in some respect, we still do that today. I, I needed a washer read the owner's manual, said, when you change the oil, you should change the washer. And I said, okay, I'm a little self-mechanic. So I went and I got a washer and, and I went to the uh, parts store there in the dealership and it said that that was an authorized part. Sometimes you'll see it on a dealership, authorized service and parts. They're saying that they represent the, country, the, the, the company and they are able to give you the right kind of part. That's what the Lord Jesus is saying. He said, I am authorized. I have God's seal of approval upon my life. First recognized at the baptism and then in the countless miracles that have followed. And I alone have the authority to give the food that endures to eternal life. So they respond, verse 28. They said, therefore, to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Now, the people pick up on this word work and they misinterpret it to think that they have to work somehow for their salvation. What should we do? They had missed the whole point that the Son of Man will give you something, not something you work for. And by the way, people have not changed, have they, in a few thousand years? You meet the average guy on the street, how are you going to get to heaven? What are God's entrance requirements? And he'll begin to rattle to you what he has done, what he has accomplished, or maybe the things he's kept away from. And they completely miss the word give that indicates this is a gift from God. And people very often in their pride and their self-sufficiency always want to do something to merit heaven, but it is impossible. My quiet time this week, I came across the story of Naaman the leper and and I couldn't help but connect these two passages together. If you haven't read it in a while, you might want to read it. It's in 2 Kings chapter 5. If you remember, Naaman was the captain of the Syrian army. He was a valiant warrior. He's deeply respected by the people. But though he was a great hero, he contracted leprosy. And through one of the battles, they had taken captive a little Jewish girl who served in his home, who served as his wife's maid. And she had compassion on her master. And she thought, if only he could see the prophet Elisha, he would be healed of his leprosy. So on the course of events, he ends up in Elisha's home. And Elisha sends one of his messengers out to him. And he says, go to the Jordan River and seven times dip in the water and you'll be totally healed. And he said, listen, if all I had to do was wash in a river, we got two good rivers back in Damascus, I wouldn't have come all the way here to Israel. And so he leaves angry. 
thinking, what kind of advice? What a simple, moronic solution. But the attendants were a lot brighter than he were and were able to reckon some sense into this man's mind. And they say, my father had the prophet told you to do something great. Would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean. And so he believes the word of God that is given through Elisha the prophet. He goes down to the river. He washes seven times. He is instantly healed of his leprosy. And the Bible teaches that his skin is like that of a little baby. Now, he's really a picture of salvation. He's condemned. He has the mark of death upon his life. The disease would kill him. It doesn't matter that he's prominent and well-liked and wealthy. He's condemned. He's an enemy of Israel because he's not a part of the covenant community. And like Naaman, we too, the Bible teaches, are condemned. The Son of Man came not to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is saved. He who does not believe is condemned already. We are condemned before God in our sin. Romans 10, or 5.10 says that we're enemies of God. But he heard a witness. There was a little girl in his home who had not forgotten the God of Israel. And being the faithful worker that she was, she had an effective witness. She had a basis in which she could speak to her master. Some of us, because we're faithful workers, we have integrity with those for whom we work or serve, and so you have a platform from which to witness. Now, initially, this guy tries to save himself. He goes to the king of Israel, the king of Syria. He brings all of his money thinking that somehow he can buy the prophet's favor. But he realizes he cannot. Initially, he resists God's way of deliverance for him. But then he comes in faith. He believes the word of God. He's instantly healed. He's delivered from his leprosy. And like anyone who's delivered from their sin, he makes an open confession. And he says, I know now that the God of Israel is the one true God. And the Bible said that he left in peace. Now, Jesus is looking for people just like Naaman. People who recognize that they are condemned, who are enemies of God. They hear a witness as the word of God is preached. They recognize they cannot save themselves. They must simply believe and cling to the word of God. They're delivered from the penalty of their sin. They're willing to openly confess him and they leave with peace with God. Jesus said it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick, that he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so all false religion has as its core a works righteousness. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Liberal Protestantism, the social gospel says, just help your fellow man and you'll make it to heaven. Legalistic Catholicism says, do penance, earn indulgences, have masses said, and you'll be accepted by God. Islam says to fast. Hinduism says to torture your body and perform prodigies of physical endurance. And even the rabbis in Christ's day said, just follow our traditions and God will accept you. But Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. He makes it very clear that the only quote-unquote work that was necessary was to believe the Father who sent the Son. Now, the Bible says that there is none who seeks God, no, not one. Understand that salvation is the work of God. You don't read in the Bible the lost sheep looking for the Savior. You find the Savior, the, savior, the shepherd, looking for the lost sheep. 
When Adam sinned, he was running from God. He was hiding from God. It was God who sought him who said, where art thou, Adam? That's not the voice of a detective. That's the voice of a seeking, searching God coming after man to help him to see his need for for a Savior. Now, please understand, when a person believes in the Lord, that is a work of God. Don't understand faith to be some kind of work. It is not. How can someone who is dead in his sin generate faith in his own heart? He cannot. The initiative begins with God. Faith is not a work. It is simply the channel that embraces what Jesus Christ has done. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's what God requires. Now, being irritated with what he has to say, they demand a sign. Notice verse 30. They said, therefore, to him, what then shall you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? A lot of folks just like that today. If you'll just give me a sign. If you'll just give me a feeling, if I, if I can have a certain kind of experience, then I will believe. Jesus said, it is an adulterous and evil generation that craves a sign. Why? Because it basically says, God, your word is not trustworthy. So what work do you perform? How could they ask that question in light of the fact that Jesus had already been authenticated by the Father? I mean, the day before he fed 20,000 people. But you see, the problem with miracle faith is that it always craves more miracles. Now, never before in the history of the world, not even during those rare times of transition, had God ever done miracles. Now, there are people that would have you to believe that miracles are something that just should happen today at the hands of these great healers and these evangelists and so forth. But understand, in the course of biblical history, there's never been a continuity of miracles. Noah never did a miracle. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob never did a miracle. The first miracles that come on the scene are hundreds of years after creation when Moses comes and there's a time in Israel's history where there's a transition. Moses leaves the scene, Joshua's commissioned, and after his death, hundreds of years go by and there's no more miracles in Israel until Elijah and Elisha comes on the scene. Another time of great transition. They die. Hundreds of years go by. No miracles until Christ and the apostles come on the scene. Those men are gone. And the scripture is very clear that God will not do miracles again through individuals as such until we come to the final transition in time during the tribulation before Jesus Christ returns from heaven. So there's never been a continuity of miracles throughout the scripture. It was only during the great ganglions of spiritual history that God performed miracles. But never before had anyone ever demonstrated the kinds of miracles that Jesus Christ did. But they respond, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, and they quote loosely here, Psalm 78, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Don't miss what they're saying. In effect, they're saying to the Lord, so you fed thousands of people with a few fish and loaves. What's so great about that? If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877 787 7478 and requesting program John 017. One of the most difficult questions posed by both Christians and skeptics of Christianity is the question, 
What about those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, Dr. Brogy answers that question both biblically and clearly by explaining the justice of God, the lostness of mankind, and the incredible power of the gospel in his book, Are the Unevangelized Really Lost? You can receive your own copy with a donation of any amount to Search the Scriptures. Please call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 to receive your copy today. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.